Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Wednesday the 3rd of November 2004. Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Two hunters take a much needed break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. ...in a wayside park just off the Trans-Canada Highway. As they enter the washroom at the rest stop, they notice what appears to be a wrapped bundle about 60 feet west of them amongst the trees and the bushes, and their guts immediately knew something was wrong. The month before, a woman had gone missing after a protest march and hadn't been seen since. With DNA evidence and witnesses clearly pointing to one suspect, it seemed as if the case would be an open-shut case. So why did it take five years for the police to arrest their prime suspect when they had such substantial evidence against them? Was this a cover-up? Had they botched the investigation? Was this incompetence? Or had there been an underlying reason as to why her case was not given all the attention that she deserved? All that and more coming right up. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into today's case, I'd just like to thank my heritage for partnering up with me for this video. I am genuinely so excited, but also weirdly nervous to be working with my heritage DNA today because we're going to be exploring and exposing my DNA. I'm sure all of my sleuths out there know my heritage, they're my go-to for researching global family history, not just for my own family tree, but also for when I'm researching cases just like the one in this video. And with the MyHeritageDNA test, you can discover your origins and even find new relatives that you didn't know you had. Their easy-to-use cheek swab was so quick to do, 
and their instructions were simple and easy to follow. Once I'd taken a cheek swab, I popped it in the post and sent it off, and watched my emails like a hawk, waiting for the results to come through. And when they did, this was my reaction. Okay, so the results are in. I am here with my bestie, Molly. We're going to be taking a look at this, what my heritage found in my DNA. I am really nervous and scared. I'm so nervous. What if I found out like a secret, like a family secret, a deep dark family secret that I didn't know? Like maybe I'm secretly from like Mars. I don't know. Let's find out. Let's take a look. Let's go. I'm ready to explore my ethnicity. Joshua, you are... 64.4% English, 23.9% North and West European, eight, only 8.8% Irish, Scottish and Welsh. You've been lying this whole time going around saying you're Welsh. Well, my dad was born in Wales and that's his ancestry. Maybe maybe my dad's lying. Maybe my dad's lying, guys. Nowhere that's outside very, of Europe. I'm Eurocentric. <laughs> Eurovision. I am Eurovision. I am the Eurovision. <laughs> that's really interesting. Mm, I'm going to have to have some conversations with my father. He'd be lying. He'd be lying. So let's take a look at this full ethnicity estimate. Take a quick look. Okay, so this gives us more information. Let's take a look at the DNA matches. What if I'm related to like the king? We don't know what this is going to bring up. We will be uh, censoring out uh, actual private information when we go into this DNA matches pages for obvious reasons. So let's take a look. Oh my God. It like... says I've got uh, my parents' second cousin in Australia. Australia? And a third cousin in the UK. These are actually wow. quite close relations, actually. Do you not know these names? I don't know these names at all. I'm not going to say these names out loud. I know the name of the fourth person down, that last name. Haven't you done your family tree as well? And these didn't well, come Well, that's the thing with my heritage. Now that I've got my DNA, you can use these DNA matches to help build your family tree and put it all together. So I'm going to spend, after after I've finished this video, I'm going to spend quite a long time just putting all of this together. Overall, I am pleasantly surprised yet also confused by these results quite simply because I feel like I've lived my life a bit of a lie. So a lot of questions need to be asked and I'm going to be taking this to my dad. I'm going to actually see, I'm going to get my dad to do this DNA test as well and see what his comes back as because that might answer more questions. There may be a family mystery waiting to be solved. If you want to see what mysteries may lie in your DNA, and family history, my heritage has given me a special code just for you. Use code Joshua to get free shipping on your My Heritage DNA test kit. And as an added bonus with my code, you'll unlock a 30-day free trial of My Heritage's best subscription for family history research. And on top of that, you'll get a 50% discount if you decide to continue after your trial. Click the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use code Joshua to discover the truth behind your family history. A special thank you to MyHeritage for partnering up with me to bring you this video and supporting content like this. It's brands like MyHeritage that help us give a voice back to those who may not necessarily have one. Now, back to the case. Divas Joseph Boulanger was born on Thursday the 15th of January 1976 in Winnipeg, Canada to her parents Jimmy John Boulanger and Victoria Jane Boulanger. Divas had two brothers and one sister and was raised at Berens River, Manitoba. She was a member of Mimimwizibing, known by the settlers as Berens River First Nation. Growing up in the Ojibwe or Anishinaabeg way of life, 
Devers was surrounded by the beautiful nature of the Pigeon River, known as Barron's River. Sadly, we don't know all too much about Devers's upbringing, but what we do know is that she studied art at the University of Manitoba, creating this piece of indigenous artwork called Untitled in the year 2000 that could, at the time, be found in the tunnels below Duff Roblin the university's Fort Garry campus. We also know that she wrote and illustrated a book in 2003 called Nian and that she eventually settled in Winnipeg. One of her best friends at the time of the events of this case taking place, Alaya McIver, spoke to CBC News for their mother-sister-daughter MMIWG project. Let's take a listen. Anine, everyone. My name is Alea McIver. I am a transgender and indigenous Iqua from the Sandy Bay Ojibwe First Nation. I'm here to honor my best friend, Divas Belanche, strong indigenous transgender woman who came from the Barrens River First Nation and uh, became a stat to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls due to the fact of um, social programming not designed nor tailored um, to really help those who identify in the spectrum of gay, bi, lesbian, trans, two-spirit, queer, gender non-conforming. Um, she became a statistic and became um, exploited and uh, exploited throughout uh, the city of Winnipeg. And uh, as a result, she lost her life to violence. It's important to really capture Divas for who she was. Um, in 2004, uh, the headlines weren't so friendly with Divas. Uh, the headlines uh, dehumanized her rather than humanizing her. So she was known as um, Divas B, uh, transvestite uh, prostitute. Divas, uh, she was crazy. She was fun. She was um, a sociable butterfly. Uh, yeah. She was someone that you would latch onto and really consider a sister. Mm -hmm. We were marching because we've lost um, numerous um, trans women to violence. So we marched in honor of them that night, not knowing we were marching, you know, and her life would end that night. The march that Alaya mentioned at the end of that clip was the Take Back the Night March that took place in the evening of the Thursday, the 30th of September, 2004. Take Back the Night, or TBTN, is an influential global movement that found its start in the 1970s, primarily advocating against all forms of sexual violence. The inception of TBTN can be traced back to a significant tribunal council meeting in Belgium, where over 2,000 women from more than 40 countries convened. The early days of the movement saw activists highlighting the insecurity and lack of safety women felt and experienced walking alone at night. A notable event in the foundation's history had been a 1973 demonstration at the University of Southern Florida, where women marched with broomsticks and dressed in black sheets demanding a center for women. Two years later in Philadelphia, a TBTN march to protest the murder of a microbiologist took place, which further cemented the movement's purpose and awareness. The 1970s also witnessed protests in San Francisco against explicit violent adult videos, and attacks on women. As a result of these initial rallies, countless events mushroomed worldwide, ranging from remote towns in Canada to bustling cities in India and spanning prestigious institutions to 
military facilities. Over the years, the reach and influence of TBTN and the TBTN Foundation has expanded considerably and touches the lives of millions annually. And on the 30th of September 2004, a TBTN march took place in Winnipeg, a march that Divas and her friends attended and took part in. And as Divas' best friend described, that march would be the last time that her friends and family would see her alive ever again. Divas' sister Tammy Boulanger last spoke to Divas on the phone on the 28th or the 29th of September. Tammy tried to get in touch with Divas over the weeks following the march, but to no avail, and her concern for Divas's well-being quickly grew. Gail Dalman, who had worked for the Provincial Family Services, last saw Divas on the 28th of September, and Gail had told Divas to return later that day to collect an assistance check, which had been something that Divas had done many times before, though Divas failed to return to pick up the check. On the morning of Wednesday the 29th of September, between 10am and 11am, Sean Lefort showed Divas a rental suite, which Divas ended up signing up to rent from the 1st of October. But just like Gail Dalman and just like Divas' sister, Sean never saw Divas again. On the 18th of October 2004, Divas' sister, full of panic and worry, reported Divas as missing to the police. Constable Darren Scamora of the Winnipeg Police Service was assigned to Divas's missing person case. Divas's sister had indicated to the authorities that Divas had been missing since about the 30th of September 2004. She further stated that Divas had last been seen in the area of Sergeant and Young, getting into a grey pickup truck, though no number plate could be provided. Constable Darren Scamora contacted Shelley Glover about the case, who then issued a press release on the 20th of October 2004. Now, over the course of the weeks that follows Divas being reported as missing, tips did come in to Constable Darren Scamora's unit, including some tips that had been forwarded to them by Divas's sister. All of those tips were followed up on, though they yielded no results. Of note, however, had been the events of the 28th of October 2004, when Constable Darren Scamora was instructed by Detective Sergeant Glenn Smith to search an area not far from the Higgins area, which included an open field near Ogilvie Mills on Higgins, a roadway into Gateway Packers behind the Medellin Enterprises at 1111 Higgins, and the boat launch by the Louise Bridge, though these searches were to no avail. The investigation into Diva's disappearance was still young, but they needn't wait long before a break in the case would be made that would turn the missing person's investigation completely on its head. On the 3rd of November 2004, two hunters contacted the authorities and reported that they had come across what they believed to have been a body. The hunters had stopped to use a washroom in a wayside park about 10 kilometres east of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, in the medium along the Trans-Canada Highway. The suspected body had been spotted by the hunters in the trees and bushes behind the washroom. When the authorities arrived on scene, they found the body wrapped in shrink wrap, black garbage bags, and packing tape. Sergeant William Crawford had been one of the responding officers that day, and his attention was first directed to a wrapped bundle consistent with a body located about 50 feet west behind the washroom. Sergeant William Crawford took crime scene photographs of the scene before the body was recovered and transferred to the Health Sciences Centre for autopsy the following morning. Ten hairs found stuck to the tape that bounds the body were collected and sent to the RCMP laboratory to undergo forensic examination. The autopsy was conducted by Dr. Charles Littman, who observed several injuries on the remains, 
This included a four centimeter oblique laceration to the skull, which would have required a significant amount of force and which is commonly caused by an object resembling that of a baseball bat, bar, pole, or other rod-like object. Two more lacerations to the head of the body were also found and determined to have required a substantial amount of force to inflict, as all three were full thickness lacerations, and Divas had a full head of hair that would normally protect the skin's surface. Over 10 different injuries to the skull were noted during the autopsy, including depressed skull fractures under three of the injuries, would have caused brain damage. The blood alcohol level had been determined to have been 229 milligrams percent, the urine 336 milligrams percent, and the bile 270 milligrams percent. Dr. Charles Lippmann stated that he felt that of those three readings, the urine reading was probably the most reliable due to the impact of decomposition on the others. It was Dr. Charles Lippmann's opinion that the victim had stopped drinking and had been in the elimination phase of the alcohol at the time of death. The toxicology screening found cocaine, codeine, acetaminophen, and naproxen in the urine, though the quantity of those drugs in the system could not be determined. The cause of death was determined by Dr. Charles Littman to have been blunt trauma to the head, noting that the blows to the head were significant and sufficient to cause the death. An analysis of the crime scene revealed there to have been little blood on the body or the wrapping that the body was found in, which indicated that the victim had been killed elsewhere. Further, the decomposition of the remains suggested that the victim had been in the park for some time prior to discovery. Heartbreakingly, the remains were determined to have been that of 28-year-old Divas Boulanger. The missing persons case had morphed into a homicide investigation and the detectives were keen to speak to those who had been with Divas the evening of the march where she was last seen. Erin Flett contacted the police in mid-November 2004 with information about the night Divas was last seen. Erin had known Divas since she was 13, and she told the police that she had last seen Divas on the 30th of September 2004, wearing a velvet skirt and black tank top. At that time, they had actually lived together on Main Street next to the West Hotel. And that evening, Erin explains, they had gone to the Take Back the Night March for missing and murdered women. After the march, the two of them had gone to work in an area close to the King's Hotel. Erin and Divas worked for a couple of hours, before heading back to their home and calling their dealer looking for drugs. Though, Erin revealed, the dealer's phone had been switched off, and so the pair decided to go back to work on Sutherland and Main. At some point after starting work on Sutherland and Main, Erin told the investigators that she saw a truck pull up and turn off the lights. Erin then described how Divas went to the truck, got in, and told Erin that she would be right back. Though, tragically, Erin would never see Divas again. Erin described the truck as being a small two-seater truck, a model from the 80s. It appeared to have been raggedly painted with a grey primer. The tail lights had been red and orange, and there were black bars on the rear window. Another one of Divas's friends, Dixie Behrens, also came forward with information to the authorities. Dixie was Divas's cousin and told the police that the last time she saw Divas had been when she bumped into her at Maine and Logan at around the middle of September 2004. Divas had attended the tape back the night march with Erin Flett, Elia McIver, and other friends from Sage House, which was a drop-in centre and safe house. Dixie explains that her last meeting with Divas had been prior to the Take Back the Night event. Dixie had gone to work at the King's Hotel just off Waterfront and Higgins. It had been dark out when Dixie and Divas had met at around 9pm or 10pm, and together they decided to go to the West Hotel. It was there that they met up with Erin Flett, according to Dixie, 
and the three of them decided to go to Diva's and Erin's place. Dixie had been drinking beer that day and later continued drinking at Erin's and Diva's place. She told the authorities that she believed Diva's had only had one or two beers when they had gone back to their place and that Erin had also been drinking. The three of them had, Dixie explained, been trying to get in contact with a crack cocaine dealer but the dealer's phone had been switched off. And so Dixie decided to go to work in front of the West Hotel. According to Dixie, after five or 10 minutes, a vehicle pulled up, a gray truck. Dixie described how Divas approached the vehicle, a vehicle that Dixie claimed to have never seen before or since. Dixie stated that she couldn't see who was in the truck, but Divas opened the door, turned around and said she would be right back. She described the truck as gray, older, dirty, rusty, and with tinted windows. Further, Dixie described the vehicle as having bars in the back, guessing it to have been some kind of a Ford. She also suggested that it had been a two-door, two-seated vehicle. When asked to describe what Divas had been wearing when Dixie had last seen her, Dixie said that Divas had been dressed in black and had been wearing Dixie's leather biker jacket. When asked to estimate the time that this had happened, Dixie stated that she saw Divas getting into that truck between 10pm and midnight, and then never again. Eliya McIver, who we listened to earlier, described Divas, also spoke to the authorities shortly after Divas' body was found. Aliyah had known Divas since she had been 12 years old, and just like Erin Dixie, had last seen Divas on the night of the Take Back the Night march. After the events, Aliyah had gone to work as a sex worker and had seen Divas between Argyle and Waterfront Drive on Higgins. According to Aliyah, Divas had a piece of crack, which Aliyah bought from her for $5. With that $5, Divas bought two king cans of beer. Aliyah stated that Divas was originally alone, but had ultimately been joined by Dixie and Erin. Aliyah also revealed that Divas had just made $20 through sex work and wanted to purchase crack, though Aliyah declined to accompany Divas to the procurement of substances, as Aliyah had wished to earn more money before leaving. And so Erin, Dixie and Divas proceeded westbound towards West Street without Aliyah, headed to Erin and Divas's place. Aliyah never saw Divas again. Ten days after this first statement to the police, Aliyah spoke with the police again to discuss an incident that had occurred that concerned her. Aliyah explained that she'd been picked up by a man on a Saturday or a Sunday following the first statement at about 4am. A truck had been following Aliyah, passing her at Austin Street before stopping. Aliyah then jumped in. Aliyah revealed that she had been picked up by this man numerous times before and agreed to go with the man to his place of business. The first time that Aliyah had met this man, he had asked her where to find Divas, as the man stated he had been infatuated with her lips. When Aliyah had been picked up most recently by the man, the truck had been black. This stuck out to Aliyah as the truck had previously been grey, like a primer grey as if it was getting ready for a paint. Aliyah also noted that the truck had a different door than before, no stereo, and it had a crack on the dash. The man told Aliyah that the truck had been broken into uh, in, in an attempt to explain all these changes. The truck itself had been an older model Nissan or Datsun, and Aliyah was taken by this man to 755 Wall Street, which is where she had been taken by this man four times before, it was his workplace. Aliyah had also been to the man's house on Walnut or Hazelnut Street. On every occasion that Aliyah met this man, he'd been driving that truck. The pair parked in the back of the man's workplace and entered through the back. Inside, the man tried to give Aliyah alcohol, though the alcohol was not labelled and had been in a green bottle. 
a liar didn't take a drink from it. The man told a liar that he was closing down his business to go work in the oil rigs in Alberta and that it would be the last time that she would see the man. A liar and the man did attempt to have sex, but it didn't work out and a liar felt very uncomfortable. The man did, though, pay a liar for her time and dropped her back off at home. Critically, though, a liar made notes of the man's license plate number. BSA 874. She described the man as being between 27 to 34 years of age and Matei. The man had told a liar that he was from Swan River and that he had an eagle tattoo on his arm. Uh, the, she described him as having acne and holes um, on his face, which were presumably acne scars. The authorities finally had a lead. They finally had that one piece of information that could bring Divas's killer to justice, the license plates of the vehicles seen by the three witnesses. And so the detectives conducted a search of the Manitoba vehicle branch records. The results shows that the license number had been associated with the 1987 Toyota pickup truck registered to a man called Theodore R. Herntier that lived on Wall Street, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Finally, the police had a suspect. On the 30th of November 2004, the police decided to pay Theodore a visit at his last known address, which was actually his business premises of 755 Wall Street. Though, when they knocked on the door, Theodore's brother Sterling answered, and he told the police that his brother, who he referred to as Ted, had moved to Alberta to work on the oil rigs, and that the last time he had seen his brother had been a week ago when he had returned to Winnipeg for a short time. Ted's brother told the police that Ted had travelled to Alberta with a truck and had been closing out his Winnipeg businesses alongside another business that Ted had in Swan River. The police tried to get a hold of Ted in the months that followed, but they were unsuccessful. And it wouldn't be until January 19th of 2005 that the case would see any developments. On that day, an officer pulled over a 1987 Toyota pickup truck that had been blue and black in colour for a traffic stop near Swan River, Manitoba. The officer noted that the taillights of the vehicle had been different colours due to the fact that one of the taillights had been missing its cover. Ted had been the only occupant of the vehicle and it is unclear what the outcome of this traffic stop had been. But what we do know is that on the following day, on the 20th of January 2005, Ted actually made contact with the investigators over the phone after the police had tried that same day to reach him. Ted told the police that he'd be working in Alberta for the next two weeks, but that he regularly returned to Manitoba on his days off. He ended the call by saying that he would call the police within a week to arrange a time and place to speak. It's unclear whether this meetup, this in-person conversation actually took place. And suddenly, the detectives found their case at a dead end. They knew they had to get a result, so they went back to the statements given by Divas's friends to make sure they didn't miss any vital information. They decided to take a closer look at Elias' statements about the premises that Ted had taken her to during their encounter. By this point, it seemed as if the investigators were at a loss as to what to do, and so they applied for a general warrant to search the shop that Ted had taken Elias to. 755 Wall Street. The police had estimated that 775 Wall Street had a high probability of being the location of the murder if Ted had been the killer. And so on the 21st of February 2005, a general warrant was executed at 755 Wall Street by RCMP FIS and blood stain pattern analysts. A minimum of 20 projected stains were noted on the south wall in the garage area of West End Machine Shop. Presumptive tests for blood were conducted on four of the noted stains and all four of them tested positive 
for blood. Another stain in the office portion of the premises, which was where Manitoba Vacuum was situated, also tested positive. The discovery of blood at 775 Wall Street provided grounds for the investigators to apply for a search warrant on the premises, which they applied for that same day. The search warrant was executed the following day on the 22nd of February 2005. A minimum of 130 projected stains in two primary locations were located on the south wall in the garage area of West End Machine Shop. Swabs were obtained from these stains to be processed as evidence. A clear piece of packing tape from the cement floor of the shop, a mop, an empty ice cream pail and a bottle of cleaning solution from the bathroom area, as well as a broken rifle stock found in the ceiling, were also seized. Staff Sergeant Ellis had been the Forensic Identification Services Manager for the RCMP in Manitoba and had previously been part of FISS based out of a forensic lab in Winnipeg, where he provided services pertaining to bloodstain pattern analysis. Staff Sergeant Ellis had attended 755 Wall Street in Winnipeg to search for and examine bloodstain patterns. In the garage area at the back of the premises on the south wall, Staff Sergeant Ellis located two distinct areas of blood splatter. The first stain pattern observed started 42 centimeters above the floor and projected to 152 centimeters above the floor. The second stain pattern started right above the floor and extended to 90 centimeters above the floor. The smaller the stain, the greater the force applied to produce the stain. Staff Sergeant Ellis ultimately concluded that the stain patterns had been consistent with the injuries detailed in the autopsy report of Divas. Three swabs taken from the stains of the south wall of West End Machine Shop were sent to be analysed, and it was determined that the DNA typing profiles from those swabs matched that of the known sample of Divas. Following the searches at 755 Wall Street, on the 28th of February 2005, a warrant to search was obtained that focused on records pertaining to Ted Herntier's cell phone, and those records were subsequently seized from his provider. We'll explore the cell phone records in more detail when we discuss the Crams version of events and evidence later on in this coverage. Now, it was critical the investigation at that time for the detectives to establish the key characters within Ted's life, and so they interviewed several people connected to Ted to ascertain further details. The detectives decided to speak with a man called Bill Taylor, who had been the owner of the premises at 755 Wall Street, where Ted had his business. The building itself housed two separate businesses known as West End Machine Shop and Manitoba Vacuum, with Ted running West End Machine Shop and his brother Sterling running the Manitoba Vacuum business. According to Bill Taylor, the tenancy agreement between him and Ted started on the 1st of April 2004 and was set to expire on the 31st of March 2005. However, Bill explains, Ted failed to make his December 2004 and January 2005 rental payments. Bill also revealed on the 27th of January 2005 that he observed a male leaving 755 Wall Street who he determined to have been neither Ted Herntier or his brother Sterling. This male told Bill that he'd been checking the heat for his brother, who had the business at the front of 755 Wall Street, which would have been Manitoba Vacuum. Bill, presuming this male to have connections to the Herntier brothers, asked whether he could check in on West End Machine Shop, as he had neither seen nor heard from Ted since November of 2004. Bill entered the shop and noticed that all the equipment and tools had been removed from the shop, and it appeared to Bill as though Ted had vacated the premises. Bill described the shop as being, quote, stripped, with the only thing being in sight of being a pickup truck. He further explains that as the premises had been vacated and rent not paid, Bill decided to run a number of adverts in the local newspaper in an attempt to rent the premises again. Editing Josh here. The fact that Bill relisted the rental property in the newspapers could have shown how somebody who was not involved or a third party or another person could have been aware that the premises was empty and then conducted or carried out the murders. It's not really mentioned again um, at all in the trial actually at this point, but I just thought it was uh, something that I should point out 
uh, for Karate's sake. Tragically, Bill Taylor passed away before he could be called as a witness. Another one of the people interviewed had been Ivan Fleming, who had known Ted through Ted's parents and Ted's brother. Ivan told the investigators that he knew Ted had set up his business in the spring of 2004, and that year in 2004, he and Ted saw each other almost daily. Ivan explains that he had a key to the building that permitted him access to both Ted's brother's business, Manitoba Vacuum, which had been located in the front, and Ted's business, which was in the rear. When Ted closed his business in the fall of 2004, which was when he stopped paying rent to Bill, Ivan recalled that some of the items in the business had been packed into a van, some sold, while others remained in the shop. According to Ivan, Ted's brother Sterling went to Scotland for two weeks at the start of October 2004, and Sterling left Ivan in charge of his business during his absence. That hadn't been the only time that Ted's brother had left to go on business, though. He also went to Los Angeles for a week or two in the fall or early winter of 2004. According to Ivan, there had been a problem with the hydro within the shop, and Bill had recommended to him that he should remove as much of the contents of the business as possible until it could be fixed. Now, interestingly, Ivan knew of Divas through the Main Street Project, the Beat the Street Learning Center, and through a friend. Though Ivan insisted that his relationship with Divas had been that of a passing acquaintance. The final person of note that the investigators spoke to, who had been connected to Ted, had been a man by the name of Andre Parisian. Andre had operated an auto mechanics business just down the road from 755 Wall Street, so he would see Ted three to five times a week mostly at one another's shops. Andre had been inside Ted's shops, quote, too many times to count, and he described the premises as having a south wall that was about 30 feet long, adorned with various pieces of equipment. Andre had also assisted Ted with several jobs, including the removal and replacement of engines in vehicles. He described the nature of his relationship with Ted as, quote, acquaintances, noting that they did not socialize outside of each other's shops. The discussions they had predominantly included cars, trucks, weekend activities, drinking, and notably sex workers. Ted had brought up the topic of sex workers with Andre, telling him that he would pick up, quote, the odd prostitute. Andre disclosed that he had been to Ted's home before, but had never been inside. When asked if he had seen any women around Ted's shop before, he stated that he had seen women there two or three times, once in the daytime and a couple of times at night. But to Andre, the women appeared to have been different women on each occasion. The investigators proceeded to ask Andre about Ted's pickup truck, which he described as being a Toyota quarter ton, two-door pickup truck, who revealed that the vehicle had a modified front and back bumper and a grille over the back window. Andre described how the vehicle had changed colour multiple times, first camouflage, then primer grey and then to black. Ted had actually told Andre that he had changed the colours of the vehicle in order to change its appearance. Now the most important piece of information that Andre told the authorities about had been a specific conversation that he had engaged in with Ted in the beginning of the fall of 2004. In this conversation that had occurred in Ted's shop, Ted told Andre that he, quote, killed somebody, a scum piece of shit person that nobody would miss. Andre described Ted as not being his normal self while telling him this, and it actually scared Andre, who responded by saying, quote, you did what you had to do, apparently out of fear. Andre would later testify that he said what he had said in order to get out of the shop as quickly as possible, and at the time of that conversation taking place, Ted's vehicle had been black in colour. Now, Ted had actually done some work on one of Andre's vehicles, but Andre hadn't the money to pay Ted for the work, so he gave Ted the vehicle to pay off the debts, which Ted then told him that he was going to exchange it for a cube van. To the best of Andre's knowledge, Ted did in fact trade the car for the cube van, 
as he had seen a dirty white cube van at the shop. According to Andre, Ted put his equipment in this van with Andre helping put a couple of items in the vehicle. Most of these items had been shrink wrapped in plastic, which came from a roll inside the shop, and the vehicle itself was stored in the shop. Apparently, Ted had planned to weld the doors shut on the vehicle so that nobody could steal the equipment. Now, as the year came to a close, Ted told Andre that he was moving to Alberta to go to the oil rigs, which he did just before Christmas. Ted then returned at Christmas and left again shortly afterwards. The final information of notes that Andre revealed to authorities had been shortly before Christmas. He had received a telephone call from Ted asking if anybody was around or looking for him, to which Andre responded that it did not appear that anyone had been around. After Christmas, Andre allegedly saw Ted in the shop working on the front end of the cube van. Now, this vital information regarding the cube van and Ted's movements were pinnacle in the organization of an undercover operation that was carried out on the 9th of November 2005. In this operation, the police purchased the cube van and its contents, the equipment and tools from Ted's West End machine shop, buying it from Ted's brother, who sold it to them on his behalf. Forensic analysis was then conducted on all of the materials found within the van, and backing up Andre's testimony, all of the equipment stored within had been wrapped in a clear plastic shrink wrap, with a roll of the shrink wrap being found within the van. Notably though, no blood was located on any equipment or wrapping. Now this is where the case gets extremely frustrating and where the case effectively goes dark for a number of years. Because despite the overwhelming evidence and testimony, the RCMP didn't pursue Ted Hearns here for the homicide of Divas until six years after the fact in 2010. On Wednesday the 14th of July 2010, the RCMP arrested Ted, who was 40 years old at that point, near Arcola, which was a town about 180 kilometers southeast of Regina. The RCMP announced the arrest at a news conference on Friday the 16th of July 2010, explaining to the media that Ted had been charged with second-degree murder and was in the process of being transferred back to the city of Winnipeg for court proceedings. The spokesperson further told the media that the arrest had been the result, quote, of an ongoing lengthy investigation, though that no new evidence or witnesses had come forward. Quote, there were numerous witnesses to interview, mountains of forensic evidence to go through, and it's taken this long to put the evidence together in a fashion that an arrest could be made, said the spokesperson. Now, it's very unclear as to the exact reasoning behind why it took so long for this arrest to be made, whether you believe that it really did take them six years to, to build this case or not, but some people believe that Diva's case hadn't been prioritised due to the fact that not only was she transgender, but also Aboriginal. But that discussion is one outside the scope of this video. To fully understand the nuances and complexities of the legal proceedings of this case, we're going to be going through the preliminary hearings, Ted's post-hearing statement, the Crown's version of events and all their evidence, the defence's positioning, the sentencing and finally the appeal. I'll try to keep each section as brief and non-repetitive as I'm able to for simplicity's sake, but if you are interested in the more complicated legalities, then don't hesitate to go to the sources in the description of this video and read through the case files. Now, Ted did apply for and was granted bail following his arrest pending the preliminary hearings on the 23rd of September 2010. The evidence presented by the Crown at the preliminary inquiry essentially supports the following facts of the case. That Divas had been involved in the sex trade and Ted had operated a machinist shop at 755 Wall Street. That Divas had disappeared on or about the 28th day of September 2004. That Ted had, on occasion, picked up sex workers and had taken them to both his residence and his shop at 755 Wall Street, that Ted had a Toyota pickup truck that was grey at the time of Diva's disappearance, that in the fall of 2004 Ted had claims that he quote killed somebody, a scum piece of shit person that nobody would miss, that Divas's blood had been found on the wall of Ted's business at 755 Wall Street, that a hair belonging to Ted had been found adhered to the tapes carrying the wrapping of Divas's body 
when it had been found wrapped in plastic behind the washroom at a wayside stop on the Trans-Canada Highway, that the development of the insects found in the wrapping on Divas's body was consistent with the date of Divas's disappearance. But the bloodstain patterns on the wall of Ted's premises at 755 Wall Street had been consistent with the injuries observed by the pathologist on Divas. The place that Ted had called his friends from on the 30th of September 2004 had been the same rest stop where the body had been located. Again, We'll take a closer look at the cell phone records during the Crown's version of events during the trial. That Divas had last been seen getting into a grey pickup truck, similar to that owned by Ted. That Divas had suffered nine blows to the head with sufficient force to have caused a depressed skull fracture. And that the injuries on her skull had been caused by a linear object resembling a baseball bat, pole, or some other rod-like object. After this had been presented during the preliminary hearing, the defence counsel, so Ted's defence, indicated that Ted had something that he wanted to say. It was at that point that Ted rose and read an apparently pre-prepared statement in which he proclaimed his innocence. Ted stated to the courts that he did not kill Divas, describing the, quote, baseless charge as a nightmare, and asserted his view of some of the evidence presented by the Crown. At the end of his two-minute-long statement, the defence counsel announced that the defence would not be calling any evidence. Let's take a closer look at Ted's statement. Ted testified his denial that he knew Divas or that he had killed her. He confirms that he had run a machine shop at 755 Wall Street and that he had moved out of the premises on the 15th of October 2004 due to the fact that his business was not performing well. Ted explains that his plan after moving out had been to go to Alberta to work in the oil fields. He testified that he had gone up to Swan River on the 30th of September 2004 to look after some business regarding a property he owned there before moving. Ted claims that he had got a flat tyre near Portage La Prairie, but claims that it had occurred some distance to the west of the rest stop and that he had pulled off the highway and onto the median road to make the calls, acknowledging that he had called his two friends and that in the end his niece had gone to pick him up. Well, again, we'll touch on that in just a moment. It had been Ted's position that if Divas had been killed at 755 Wall Street, it had been after he had vacated the premises on the 15th of October 2004. He stated that his machining equipment was large and covered the wall on which the police found the blood drops, saying that the only way the blood could have sprayed on the wall was after the equipment had been removed further stating that this was supported by the facts that no blood had been found on the equipment. Ted then went on to challenge the interpretation of the DNA from the hairs, saying that if someone else had killed Divas at his premises after he moved out, it would have been probable that his hairs had still been there from his earlier tenancy. With regards to his alibi on the 29th of September 2004, Ted denies that he had been on the corner of Main Street and Sutherland Avenue, but that he didn't remember what he had been doing that night. Now this all leads us into the trial itself and the Crown's version of events for what happened. So let's take a closer look at that and the evidence presented. It had been the position of the Crown that Ted had picked up Divas in his truck sometime between the 29th of September 2004 and the 30th of September 2004. The Crown then believed that Ted had killed Divas inside his business at 755 Wall Street and then disposed of the body at the park near Portage La Prairie on or about the 30th of September 2004. The cell phone records showed that on the 30th of September 2004, from 8.40pm to 8.51pm, Ted's cell phone moved from a Winnipeg calling area to a Portage La Prairie calling area. At 11.02pm, his phone had still been in the Portage La Prairie calling area, with it returning to the Winnipeg calling area on the morning of the 1st of October 2004. The phone records did not disclose any other date or time that Ted's phone had been in the Portage La Prairie calling area for an extended period of time. What the records did show, though, was the calls that Ted placed that September evening. At 8.40pm, Ted called his friend, who we'll just call friend A, 
from a rest stop just east of Portage La Prairie off of Highway 1. The only rest stop in that area that Frende knew of was by a bridge between the two lanes of traffic, and Frende assumed that had been where Ted had been calling from. Ted told Frende that he'd been driving his Toyota truck and that he had a flat tire before asking Frende to go find him a new tire or to go pick him up. Frende was unable to locate an appropriate tire and had been about to set off to pick Ted up when Ted called him back. Ted told Frede that he no longer needed Frende's assistance as his niece was going to go get him. On that same evening, at 8.52pm, 9.06pm and 9.32pm, Ted called another friend, who we'll call friend B, from the rest stop and told friend B that he had a flat tyre and needed help finding a spare. Friend B though told Ted that he couldn't help and their contact ended shortly thereafter. The cell phone records did show that Ted had contacted his niece to go get him and Ted allegedly returned the next day with a tyre to get his truck. Now interestingly, the Crown's theory changed by the end of the trial, stating that Ted had picked up Divas on the 29th of September 2004, or in the very early hours of September 30, 2004, and taking her to his shop at 755 Wall Street where, for some undetermined reason, he killed her by beating her with an object. He then wrapped her in shrink wrap and plastic, which was then taped together and the next day was in the process of disposing of the body when he got the flat tyre by the rest stop near Portage La Prairie. The defence's position headed into the trial had been that the case had been one of factual innocence. Their position had been that Ted admits that Divas had been murdered, but maintains that he had not been involved, that Ted hadn't been involved. The defence stated that Ted had never met Divas, had no motive to kill the victim, and lacked the exclusive opportunity to do so. Further, they saw the Crown's case as being circumstantial. They saw there as being no evidence as to the time or date of death, or that the grey truck seen by Miss Flett and Dixie had belonged to or was being driven by Ted. On top of that, the defence argued that there had been no evidence that Ted and Divas even knew each other. Ted argued that while there had been no evidence as to when Divas had been killed, she had, according to Miss Flett, been alive on the 30th of September 2004, because Miss Flett had gone to the march with Divas that evening and she had still been alive and with Miss Flett when the accused made his first telephone calls outside of Portage La Prairie. Thus, the defence argued Ted could not have killed Divas on the 29th of September 2004, as alleged by the Crown. The defence had called four witnesses who testified to having seen Divas alive during the month of October 2004, and they argued that the killing must have occurred at the end of October, after Ted had moved away from Winnipeg. Whatever the case, the jury deliberated on this case. They returned a verdict of guilty charging Ted with the second-degree murder of Divas. Upon being convicted of second-degree murder, Ted was sentenced to a mandatory sentence of imprisonment of life. As is a legal requirement, the trial judge obtains the jury's recommendation regarding Ted's eligibility for parole. Ten of the jurors indicated that they had no recommendation for the parole, while two jurors recommended an increase to 15 years, where it is a standard for this kind of crime, 10 years for parole. In his reasoning for the sentence, the trial judge acknowledged the mitigating factors referenced by Ted during the trial, which included his Matib background, his steady employment and lack of criminal record. In the end, the trial judge found from the facts that this had been a senseless and brutal killing of a vulnerable person, Ted's comment that the deceased was, quote, scum, the concealment of the body and the apparent lack of motive, that the trial judge had a concern that Ted would be a danger to society and that consideration had been given to denunciation and deterrence. The trial judge therefore increased Ted's parole from the minimum of 10 years to 15 years. The trial judge gave the following statement, quote, The apparent lack of motive for the crime, other than killing for the sake of killing, there simply was no explanation for this killing, save for one which I will deal with in a moment. I allow that the accused has some empathy for the surviving family members of the deceased. 
I allow for those positives in the pre-sentence report, as pointed out again by the defence counsel. It is understood that for reasons perhaps of a potential appeal that the accused may not be inclined to say too much, but the fact is I have here a situation involving what is truly a senseless killing and but for the comments made about the deceased being scum, I have no explanation for it. Ted and his defence team filed a notice of appeal on the 19th of July 2016, with appeal hearings taking place from March 2018 through to November 2019. The judgment was then determined in October of 2020. Now in this appeal, Ted appealed both his conviction by a jury of second degree murder and the parole ineligibility term of his sentence, and he raised 19 grounds but we won't be going through each of these grounds for the sake of brevity. We're going to be focusing briefly on the appeal grounds of the dates the murder occurred, which have been inconsistent within the trial, as I'm sure you may have picked up on. The defence counsel conducted a lengthy and aggressive cross-examination of Miss Flett to challenge her reliability and her credibility during the trial, including many questions about her lifestyle, alcohol and drug use, and her criminal record. Miss Flett gave many answers during the trial that could lead to a finding that she could be both unreliable and incredible, including that she started to use crack cocaine when she had been 15 years old and that the drug had affected her memory. The more she used, the worse her memory got and that it made her forget things. Miss Flat also agreed that when she spoke to the police in November of 2004, she couldn't remember a lot of the details. Now, a significant extract from the transcript between the defence counsel and Miss Flat reads, Defence, okay, so would you agree that your life was spent a lot of the time back then in the fall of 2004 in a fog? Miss Flat, in a fog. Defense. Yeah, in a fog induced by alcohol and cocaine. Miss Flett. Yeah. Defense. Okay, and you didn't keep track of the places you went, right? Miss Flett. No. Defense. You didn't keep track of time, correct? Miss Flett. No. Defense. One day was basically the same as the next day, right? Miss Flett. Yeah. The appeal judge summarised their findings of the appeal case with the following. This was not a complex case in that there was only one essential element for the jury to determine that being whether the accused killed the deceased. The trial judge sums up the jury's role close to the end of the instructions as follows. Now I've reviewed for you the evidence in this trial as have counsel. The Crown's case is a circumstantial one based on the following and I'll categorise the evidence but I'm not going to repeat it for you again. This is the evidence that you should consider. The evidence regarding the accused's truck is similar to the one that picked up Divas. The location of the body of Divas and the accused telephone conversations when he got a flat tyre the hair found on the tape used in wrapping the body and the DNA evidence regarding that, the clear plastic wrap found on the body and the roll of similar wrap found in the accused's shops, the blood splatter in the accused's shop in two locations and the DNA evidence identifying Divas as the donor of that blood, the comments allegedly made by the accused to Mr. Parisian regarding having killed someone, other evidence that you must consider is the evidence of Dr. Watson, who was the defense's expert regarding the DNA evidence, the evidence of the accused denying the killing, the evidence of the four defense's witnesses who say that they saw the deceased at a time after it is said the accused killed her. It is for the Crown to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was the person who murdered Divas. It is not for the accused to prove that he's innocent. In order to come to a true and just verdict, you must consider all the evidence together not just bits and pieces. The appeal judge went on to address first the evidence of Miss Flett. The accused argued that Miss Flett's evidence that she was with the deceased at the march on the 30th of September 2004 provides him with an alibi. While that would be true if the jury accepted the evidence, the jury was not required to do so. Miss Flett was ultimately proven to be unsure of the date, as is demonstrated by testimony excerpts from her cross-examination. It was open to the jury to find that she was mistaken as to the date on which she last saw the deceased. Second is the evidence of the four defence witnesses. Again, while they had come forward to provide information as to why they last saw the deceased alive, and when, 
Three of them allowed that they could have been mistaken as to the date. The fourth acknowledged that he wasn't sure if he saw the face of the deceased on the day in question and said that he may have seen her up to the 4th of November 2004, which was not possible because the deceased's body was found on November 3rd, 2004, and she was killed sometime before that. Thus, it was open on the evidence of the jurors to find that these witnesses were mistaken and that none of them saw the deceased alive after the end of September. Thirdly was the DNA evidence from the hairs found on the tape. The Crown asked the jury to accept this evidence as linking the accused to the wrapping of the deceased's body in his shop after killing her. While the defence argued that the defence's expert ruled out the hairs as coming from the accused, as already discussed, the presence of those hairs, even if belonging to the accused, could be explained by the fact that the accused had been working at that location for a number of months prior to the killing. Any of these findings were open to the jurors, and it is possible that they were not unanimous in their views regarding this evidence. A finding that the hair came from the deceased was not crucial to the Crown's case. While a finding by the jury that the hair did not belong to the accused, or that the jury had a reasonable doubt in that regard, did not exonerate the accused. Fourth is the I killed someone statement that Mr. Parisian attributed to the accused. Again, Mr. Parisian was uncertain as to when exactly the statement was made. He was, however, consistent as to making the statements, the circumstances in which it was made, and the words that followed. It was up to the jurors to determine whether the statement was made, and if so, when and what weight to give it. It was again not crucial to the Crown's case, but rather one piece of circumstantial evidence to be considered. There were several facts that were not refuted. The deceased's blood was found in the premises least of the accused, and no one suggested that the deceased was not killed at that location. The accused testified and said that he had never met the deceased. There was no explanation for the blood to be at that location. The deceased's friends and contacts said they did not see the deceased after the end of September. Miss Flett and Dixie both said that they last saw the deceased getting into a small truck of a description similar to the truck that was then owned by the accused. The accused was stopped at or near the rest stop outside of Portage de Prairie on September 30th, 2004, which is the location at which the deceased's body was located on the 3rd of November 2004. The deceased's body was wrapped in shrink wrap of the same dimensions as that found in the accused's van that he had used to wrap his equipment. The appeal judge then stated that in their view, the trial judge made no errors in principle and that he did not misunderstand any of the evidence. It was the appeal judge's view that the sentence he imposed was not demonstrably unfit. And for those reasons, the appeal judge dismissed the appeal relating to the sentencing and the appeal overall. Ted will hopefully rot behind bars until the end of his days. This was a case of vulnerability, tragedy, prejudice, frustration and stretched out pain. Divas had the rest of her life ahead of her, and that was taken from her violently and seemingly for no reason. I sincerely hope her family and friends are able to move forward with their lives with the memory of Divas kept close to heart. And that's everything that I have for you in this case. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video, just like this one. Special thank you to my Heritage DNA for partnering up with me on this video. Be sure to grab your exclusive discount using the links in the description or in the pinned comment. Let me know what your results are. I'm very nosy. I want to know. I want to know what your family history is like. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.